0: Were listening to Red Ladder Unwrapped. Hello, my name's Chris Lloyd. I'm producer at Red Ladder Theatre Company. If I could introduce you, Anders, if you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your relationship with uh, The Damned United, that'd be amazing.
1: Sure. My name's Anders Lustgarten. I'm a playwright and screenwriter, and I did the adaptation of The Damned United Uh, from book to stage, it's actually the only adaptation I've ever done and I really, really enjoyed it. It's a a very compelling piece of work to adapt, partly because of the the connections to real life and the relationships people have to to Clough and Leeds, but also because it's such an evocatively brilliantly written book. Uh, And the challenge of transposing some of David Peace's prose to the stage was one of the most interesting things about uh, about doing the play. So it's uh, it was, it's been a really fun uh, project to do, and it's kind of amazing that it's still going.
0: I know, I know. And Rocco, if you'd just like to introduce yourself and, and just your relationship with with football and more, more immediately Leeds United, I guess.
2: Yeah, so um, yeah, my name's Rocco Dean, I, I'm a Leeds fan. I recently wrote a book about uh, Marcelo Bielsa called Marcelo Bielsa versus the Damned United. Um, so it's not particularly related to uh, the Damned United itself, um, but it's about uh, Marcelo Bielsa's first two seasons at Leeds, where he he finally got them promoted. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a Leeds fan. I've been a Leeds fan for about 30 years. Uh, my dad's a Leeds fan, and and he actually he's probably one of the very few Leeds fans that absolutely loved Brian Clough. Um, so he was a bit gutted when he when he got sacked. Would you believe? Um, but yeah, you know that, that's basically me. I, I'm not a writer as such. Um, it's something that I I put my hand to, and it, it turned out quite well, apparently. So,
0: brilliant, brilliant. So we'll have a quick listen to um, section from the play, which looks at the relationship between Clough and Taylor.
2: Come on, you bastard! Come on, come on, pick up. Name your price, you and me, Clough and Taylor. Well, Brighton will be fine. They'll find someone else. That's football. Come on, you bastard. Come on. Pete, come to Leeds. Please, don't make me beg. I can't do it without you. Is that what you want me to say? Fine, I'll say it again. I can't do it without you. I can't fucking do it without Peter Taylor. It's too much for me, Pete. I don't like to be alone.
0: Well, I'll just do a a little thumbnail sketch of how this production came around. David Peace used to live in uh, my village just outside Wakefield. And um, I got to know him kind of reasonably well over time. And we, we talked about adapting a few of the final chapters of his Red or Dead book, which was about Bill Shankly and how the nation tends to put people on the Scrappy when they don't feel there's any use for them. So Bill Shankly was was uh, an iconic manager in the way that Don Revy was and Clough. But um, his demise at Liverpool was was quite sad. So we were going to adapt the final few chapters. And then there were some rights issues with the South Africa filmmaker. Um, and in the end, we were sat in the pub in Osset and Leeds got beaten 2-0 at Millwall. Huddersfield, which David's team, got beaten 4-0 and sacked their manager on the first day of the season. And he just turned around and said, well, why don't I just give you the rights to the Damned United? We'd been we lost our core funding. And he said, well, why don't I just give you the rights to the Damned United? So me and Rod, our artistic director, chatted for about 30 seconds. And we said, yeah, okay, that sounds like a good idea. I um, I played football on a Sunday afternoon. And James Brining, the artistic director for Leeds Playhouse, played in those games. So I said, Well, what do you think of this? And he, he was on board. And then I suggested Anders to Rod. I said, why don't we why didn't we get Anders to adapt it? And I I would like to ask you, Anders, well, what your I mean, you'd met Rod a couple of times, I think. And it, yeah, just what was your initial thoughts when this was floated to you as a you know a possibility, as an idea?
1: So it was interesting. Well, I mean, yeah, i met well, a couple of times. We talked about doing something. I'm primarily a political writer and we talked about doing something with a more specific sort of class critique or whatever, but I also I put football in every one of my plays, um, usually with a massive banterous attack on
0: Chelsea, or as I like to refer to them. I don't know if you can keep that in. Um, Have you softened to Chelsea now that Mourinho's gone at all?
1: No, how the f*** would you soften to the <laughs> c- that destroyed modern football? The only way I would soften to Chelsea is if they were eliminated from the face of the earth with a neutron bomb. Um, no, honestly, I'm, 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 I'm in a massive it didn't happen period uh, as regards the Champions League final. How can you out your way to two Champions League finals without ever playing a minute of good football? Quite amazing. Um, No, basically there's something, but there is something in football as a morality tale that I find really, really interesting in terms of, um, partly in terms of how working class people understand um, good and bad, and the possibilities of, of truth and and success and what success is and why so many of us just despise the modern football that he <laughs> invented, which is, you know, essentially being able to, it's completely deracinated and purchased and corporatized and sponsored by global mass murders. Um, and what you love about that period and Clough in particular is it's so rooted in specific times and places. And it's so rooted in Clough's really, really strong moral sense of what is right and what is wrong. And his aversion to Leeds being something to do with cheating. And I'm uh, I'm a humongous Arsenal fan, considerably less so since Wenger left. I didn't realise how much of my attachment to Arsenal was was specifically Wenger related. And as deeply frustrating as, as Arsene was in a lot of ways, I think Arsene was, had a very strong moral sense that I was quite parallel to... Uh, to Cloughs in in that sense, and that's sort of we we put a little thing in the adaptation about um, Wenger versus Mourinho, which has that same sort of thing about somebody who wants to do things the right way versus somebody who will only who is only interested in winning uh, by whatever means necessary, and that's sort of what makes Chelsea such utterly despicable is that they have no commitment to the health of the game, the quality of the game, anything whatsoever apart from well, Roman Abramovich not being murdered by Vladimir Putin, which is why he owns the club. Um, And so there's something in, I like football on stage because it's a way that we have men, particularly working class men, but more and more people in general, of talking about bigger things. It's a way of coming to big ideas of truth and justice and integrity and whatever through something that just looks like guys kicking a ball around. So I find it a really useful dramatic device. Um, also, I love David Peace's writing. I think he's, he's just a brilliant writer and an incredibly evocative writer. And so the challenge when you do an adaptation, and the reason I've never done an adaptation before is I have lots of my own stuff I'd like to do. Whereas when you're doing an adaptation, you're basically, you, they, the audience does not want to see Anders Lusgarten's take on Leeds or on Brian Clough. They want to I see- I know, just as well. Two people did, they they were both turned away at the door. Um, What they want to see is they want to see a stage version of the book. They want to see The Damned United on stage. So you've got to suspend your ego a little bit and go, what's the best way I can get the essence of this book? Not what I think of Brian Clough or whatever. And so that requires a lot, in my opinion, of the prose. The prose is so good. It's this sort of strange, hallucinatory, Sort of black magic prose, and the way I found to do that was to have um, uh, to you to have a narrative figure uh, in in the in the form of Peter Taylor to have Peter Taylor both being a character, an integral character to the story, but also sort of someone who comments and provides the wider story and evokes some of that prose. And we we also did a lot of stuff with movement. We we actually uh, had ballet dancers playing the footballs because A, sort of there's the classic thing about football being the working man's ballet, but B, you're trying to evoke this this sort of sense of movement and beauty and poetry um, in a way that really comes across in the prose, but it's hard to do on stage with just two men arguing in a boardroom or whatever. So I I took it on because A, it's fascinating and B, I, I wanted to work with you guys, but C, it really, there's a lot of ways of dramatizing that novel theatrically that are really, really rich. And I think uh, from the fact that it's still going, uh, we did it pretty successfully.
0: Brilliant. Thanks for that, Anders. And, and you're, you said, Rocco, that your dad was a big Brian Clough fan, even in the run-up to lead to pointing him. And I, I don't know, have you talked much to your dad about, you know, his thoughts and feelings at, you know, 1975, so what's that, 25, 40 odd, 45 years ago now? Um, I, yeah, I was just, I'm very interested. It's that he, he must have been a fairly lone voice, I would have thought, on the terraces at that point.
2: yeah. I am. I imagine so. It, it's surprising to me, obviously, with with everything that, that went on. I mean, I've you know, I've obviously heard all the stories. You know, I've watched. Um, well, my dad had on tape. He, he recorded the famous calendar interview with uh, with Clough and Revy after he was sacked. Um, so I've heard that a hundred times, probably. Um but no, he did. He I mean, I think he just you know felt he was very charismatic. Um obviously he was a fantastic manager, you know, what he'd done at Derby was incredible. Um and I suppose he, he was just willing to um you know let him let him get on with it and, and be the the man and the manager that he is, and, and he he had full faith that he would have made Leeds fantastic again. Um, you know, that team was, to be fair, it was coming to the end anyway. Um, you know, they've been together practically 10 years. Um, so, you know, probably, you know, it probably was time to, you know, to maybe shake things up completely. I mean, I think what Clough actually did, I mean, it was, you know, it's it's despicable, really, if if the reports are true. You know, when he went in and told them to throw all the medals in the bin and and all that. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's his character, isn't it? You know, he's, he's a very, um, you know, he's a very unique man. Um so yeah, I guess my dad was just willing to willing to let that go. He used to go to the matches with binoculars to, to watch Brian Clough in the in the dugout. It's quite incredible. Um,
0: yeah, so he he was gutted. We've maintained the binoculars tradition, anyhow. So um, <laughs> and yeah, he did. Yeah.
2: He, he brought binoculars to Ellen Road <laughs> last season a few times as well to spy on Bielsa.
0: I mean, I that I, I, I mean, there's bits in the novel which which were adapted into the play which are fascinating and we're never quite true what's fact and what's fiction with david but there, you know a number of people um so for instance we interviewed duncan Mackenzie when we went over to his house and um mean, we were there hours weren't we i mean what a raconteur duncan Mackenzie was that was club's first signing and you know we we asked the question how much of this book is true and he and he pretty much said you know 95 percent of it i think um and you know there's so many stories about club that what what it would have been interesting to find out is what what his methodology might have been if Taylor had been with him at Leeds, um, his kind of alter ego almost, wasn't he? Um, I mean, what what do you think, Anders? If if do you think he'd have adopted a, a different kind of modus operandi if Taylor had been with him, or would it have been diluted a bit? Or
1: I mean, it sounds you know from what you hear and what you read that Taylor was kind of the the mitigating influence. You know, Taylor was, and we have that in the play actually where. They work as, a, you know, the classic good cop, bad cop combo and Clough goes in and absolutely rips them to shreds. And then Taylor goes in and puts the arm around the shoulder and builds them back up again. And how much of that is something that, you know, that Clough could or would have done on his own and how much of that he adopted the sort of bad cop role. I and mean, I think when he was at Forest, he did do both of those jobs. I mean, you know, you you know, you hear from Roy Keane or whatever, that he would sort of both have an arm around his shoulder and invite him around for dinner and kiss him and then punch him in the stomach in the dressing room. So it feels like he had both of those elements in him as a, as a person anyway. But it is easier maybe if you can, you have somebody else that kind of you know, mitigates it a little bit or somebody that kind of can serve as a someone the players can go crying to or go looking for, you know, solace from. But I think he was... Yeah, I keep coming back to this idea that he was just morally opposed to the way that Leeds did things. And that he wanted not just and he says this to them, you know, not just throw these medals in the bin because they're not earned. But I can get you to win the proper way. I can get you to win with integrity and with style and with class and with beautiful football. And so he's basically in his own mind, I think, trying to make these deeply flawed people and this club culture into something morally better, partly because he doesn't respect them, but partly for their own good in a weird way. And I think that morality is something he was always going to struggle to persuade people of. Like most people do not get up in the morning with the obvious exception of uh, Pretty Patel and think, I'm going to be evil today. Most people get up in the morning with the general general belief that they're the good guys. And so it's pretty hard for these leads players, particularly as Rocco says, were at the end of their careers and been doing things a certain way, to go, Now, actually, you know what? He's right. We're, you know, we're kind of filthy. I and mean, we did talk to, to Norman Hunter and a couple of them, didn't we? And they were, they were a bit like, yeah, we were kind of filthy, but also it worked. And so it's it would be pretty hard to change the entire culture of a club, particularly when you were already known to that club as being really, really ill-disposed towards them. It's not like you could come in and go and do it on the sly. So. I mean, my suspicion is he probably would have failed with Taylor there as well.
0: Would be my guess. Just- I mean, I, again, I, I don't know how much is truth and how much is, is fiction, but his, re- his relationship with money was quite interesting, wasn't it? And that's, this was a recurring theme through 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 the book and and then the play. Um, I'm not sure it really came out in the film as much, but his relationship with money was was interesting. He knew his worth, and he wasn't going to settle for less than that. The fact that he shafted Peter Taylor over pay rises and things like that—it kind of led a lie to some of his moral crusade. I always thought. Um, so outwardly, you know, and he was, you know, he was fame hungry, wasn't he? I mean, he courted. He was never off the telly, and you know that that rankled. I think at Derby, didn't it? The fact that that you know he spent yeah, that's, much, that's what got him tired.
1: Basically, it was it was him being on TV all the time and campaigning for the England job and all of that. Yeah,
0: yeah. So he was not shy about coming forward and supporting himself. But at the same time, he was big friends with Harold Wilson, for instance, wasn't he? I think. And and um, so, I mean, there's so many dichotomies with him. Um, I mean, uh, is that I'd
1: necessarily like to- a dichotomy though? Like in a way, you get that sense of somebody who, you can sort of get that even with Alex Ferguson in the modern day, like somebody who is both firmly aware of their own worth, exactly like you said, and kind of isn't prepared to, to do the usual kind of like you're supposed to, yeah, the working class, the worker is supposed to tug their forelock and be grateful for what they get, you know, is meant to be all shy and not push themselves forward, but who can also see the kind of the flaws in the system and how the system needs reforming. And that's sort of, I think, again, loads of us, are, we have principles that we we try and live by, but maybe we apply them to the outside world better than we apply them to ourselves. You know, um, yeah, you find that with Ferguson. Ferguson was, you know, a pretty avowed socialist, but also... Had a lot of really dodgy financial dealings by all accounts. Don't know if we can say that. You know, the stuff with the racehorse and all those kinds of things. So, yeah, I mean, I think maybe that, and that's in Ferguson's upbringing, sort of hard Scrabble's coach upbringing. And I think in, in Clough's upbringing as well, you know, you,
2: he knew the value of a pound note, as they say. Do you think there's any chance um, that sabotage was in his head? I mean, he looked pretty delighted when he got sacked. <laughs> I think he was boasting about how much, how big his payoff was as well. I mean, I don't think that's the case, but do you think there's. Any chance that he, he could have just, you know, had that plan to go in and, you know, he, he would have seen that it would be a fantastic story, get a nice big payout. Agent Clough. I don't know, man. What do you think, Lolly? I mean, I think that's probably a bit too much. I don't think I
1: wouldn't put myself through that level of public humiliation. He was very averse to failure, so I don't think he'd have wanted to fail. Um, I just think he probably bit off more than he could do there.
0: I think he was desperate to win the European Cup, something that Revy hadn't done. I think he was desperate to be the manager of England, something that Revy had done. Um, and I think I think Revy being made England manager when he was pretty convinced that there was backhanders going on left, right and centre, was really, really rankled with Clough. Um, and it would have been... I, th- I think Clough as England manager would have been spectacular. I think that would have been brilliant. Yeah. Um, And I think also the impression I get with his relationship with his players was quite distant. Um, I don't think there was huge amounts of tactics. I think he'd let them play and express themselves. John Robinson used to smoke um, in the dressing room half-time, but he was a phenomenal player. But he got very much like Bielsa. I think he got the absolute best out of what were a fairly, you know, humdrum bunch of players at Forest, I think. I mean, he added to them over time with, you know, people like... um, Trevor Francis, but actually the core of that team was very, um, you know, very average, Mm. I would say.
1: And small. I mean, they they played 14 men uh, in the season. They won the first European Cup, I think, you know, in the whole season. Which is just extraordinary. I mean, you know. And on
0: those pitches as well.
1: Yeah. And without modern day, you know, nutrition and physios and all of that. I mean, the amount of graft those people would have got through is extraordinary.
0: I mean, not just the pitches, the weight of the ball, but also, you know, I don't know. I can't remember where Derby got and and Forrest got to in the Cups, but there was replay replay after replay replay after replay. Um, There wasn't any of this penalty shootout stuff. So I remember Leeds playing Ipswich four or five times in the FA Cup third round, the season that Club was at Leeds. And they would have just kept playing, you know. uh, They ran out of grounds that were neutral by the end of that tie. It was – so it wasn't just, you know – the league games. It was all a you know the uh, and the internationals on top. You know it was um, you didn't have players pulling out of internationals in those days. Um, you didn't have you know the Fergusons of this world. You know claiming slight muscle injuries for Ryan Giggs and stuff. You know that didn't happen. Players were really chuffed to play for their country. Uh, coming to you, Rocco, and your, your relationship with Leeds and and uh, and your thoughts about Bielsa. I mean, he's he is incredibly driven, and the stories you hear are. Very Clough-esque in in some respects about the level of detail, Um, but also quite Revy-esque in terms of his, I don't know, his his pathological interest in stats and um, repetitions and things like that. So, I mean, I I haven't read your book, so apologies, but do you go into the mind of Bielsa or is this a fan's view of the football that Bielsa got us to play?
2: Yeah, it, it's more of a fans a fans account, really, um, rather than go yeah exploring the mind of Bielsa. Um, that would be uh, yeah, would be quite a challenge. <laughs> uh, but no, he is yeah. It's like you say, very similar to to Revi in, in terms of you know the dossiers that, that Revy used to produce. You know Bielsa. You know he, he will not leave a stone unturned um, to to get a result. Well, as with the the Spygate fiasco. You know, when that all kicked off and and basically his reason for or his reasoning for for why he sent an intern to to watch the training sessions was just because to to control his anxiety because he wants to do everything that he possibly can that he's allowed to do. You know, it's it's not against the rules to do that. So, I mean, it it actually goes beyond just watching training. He actually sends. He sends interns to, you know, sit in a pub and talk to fans of the other team and, and just to to read the local press and just to get a feel of of the atmosphere around the club that they're about to play. And yeah, it goes to incredible, incredible depth. And he doesn't all have it in his head. You know, he's it, got a huge team behind him. Um, and so the information's there for for when he wants it. You know, he he's he doesn't know all this stuff in his head. He just he has that information to hand. As and when it, he, he feels it's needed, so yeah, it's unbelievably meticulous, um, and yeah, I, I, I mean, he's just so committed, and and I think that's how he inspires the same from his players. You know, they see what he does. You know, his whole life is just completely dominated by by Leeds United and by trying to tra- trying to win the next match, um, and it, yeah, it clearly rubs off on the players. And, and you know, we've we've seen at Leeds commitment from the players that is I mean it's it's almost overwhelming you know the the length that they've gone to and the sacrifices you know that they they have daily weigh-ins you know then then if they missed a weigh-in or if they failed on a weigh-in they wouldn't be playing in the next match so they're all you know every single day yeah they're they're fully fully committed and yeah you you can see in the way they play football and it I think it it just resonates on on the pitch and it it breeds a mentality and a positivity that I feel as, you know Leeds have just got the edge over a lot of teams not not because they're more skillful um, and not even so much because of Bielsa's tactics but just because they're so together and you know they give so much in the week that. Yeah, you you feel the rewards at the end of it when you're playing in the match and yeah they're just so determined it's it's fantastic to see.
0: I mean he's an incredibly loyal manager isn't he with you know um Kassier and and Bamford and so that you know it it feels to me that that players um buying into this has, has had good rewards for them as well. They they you know he does keep picking the same players time and time again and and we've used 23 players this season I think um City have used 30 um <laughs> 23 compared with 14 in close days is, is no, it feels like a huge bloated squad, but actually in this modern day, you know, that's very very few when you consider you know suspensions and injuries and what have you.
2: Yeah, well, uh, only only 13 outfield players played over half the matches this season, so it, I mean, it is it is still a core a core group, but yeah, of course, you you, you get one or two you know, appearances here and there, mm. and it. Yeah, 23 sounds a lot too much, um, you know, Bielsa likes to have a squad of 18, you know, whereas you know, 25 is is the modern day standard, isn't it really? Or at least two players for every position, but Bielsa likes to have a tight squad so that everyone feels, yeah, part of the team. And and like you say, yeah, that that loyalty, I think, you know, I, I, that's why they're so fit. I mean, you've, I don't know if you or you have or you haven't seen the, the running stats from this season and, and Leeds are basically off the charts.
1: Yeah, they're top by miles,
2: aren't they? Yeah, and it, and you know that's not just because he you know he trains them to such a, a length or he makes them do this and he makes them do that. I, I do think it's because of that loyalty and and you know the players know that if they're doing what he asks of them, you know they're going to keep their place. You know, very very rarely drops anybody. Mm. You know, it just doesn't really happen. You know, they can be you know playing poorly for you know six or seven weeks and he, and he won't drop them. You know, Jack Harrison in his first season. I mean, he he was poor. He was poor for weeks. He was he was taken off at half-time nearly every match for you know five or six games. But he kept getting played, and and then eventually, you know, it also helps, I suppose, with the confidence of the players to know that they're backed, and then to know that they can make mistakes. And I think it's just yeah, it's it's a very it's a very different way of doing things. I don't think many managers could even get away with it, but I suppose Bielsa can just because of this aura around him, and sort of people know that he's different, but. Like you say, you know, if Arteta was doing things like that, you know, the, the fans would probably be in uproar. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just because it's not the done thing. But with with Bielsa, it's almost like he gets a free pass.
1: I've fans who would uproar all the time, mate, to be honest with you, it doesn't <laughs> make any difference what they do. But But there is something in that loyalty, I think, that is why does that resonate with us in the modern day as fans? Because we're really tired of the kind of... Well, I mentioned at the beginning the kind of consumerization of football, where everything can be bought, and you know it's all about the next commodity and the next shiny, expensive signing. And so, if you create something very much like Clough did, like Chris was saying, that transcends the sum of its parts, you know, that creates that takes people beyond their kind of limited capacities and creates something really that we can we can relate to as fans, and we want to see. You know, there's something wildly frustrating about. Clubs being constantly torn down and rebuilt and and re bought and kind of in, always in flux. And as fans, we like to attach ourselves to a group of people who overachieve and who, who maybe um, yeah transcend their own limitations and, and have something that can't just be bought and paid for. Have a sense of of a team spirit or a collectivity or whatever. I mean, not to give Spurs any uh, any credit, but you know they did have that to a certain extent under Pochettino. Um, they obviously cheated massively and, and had the most disgusting player in England in Harry Kane diving around all over the place and fouling people but and getting refs to give him penalties. But, you know, you've got to give them the credit for transcending the sum of their parts. You know, they didn't spend a ton of money, partly because they're laughing for being competent in the transfer market, but they created something that that lifts off and isn't just, oh, we bought expensive guy X and slotted him in. Um, and the other thing I really like about Bielsa as, a, as an outsider is... Is that sense of chaos and is that sense of passion and is that sense of it's not all totally choreographed? You know, there's a sort of, um, there's something in the pep model of everything being extremely choreographed and everything existing within zone seven to zone 12 and everything being prepared in advance that's quite sterile, even when it works. And Arteta's doing a little bit too much of that for my liking at Arsenal, although I'm, you know, I'm generally a big fan of his of what he's trying to do of rescuing the uh, the club from the extreme doldrums of the cronky years. Um, but that sort of sense of spontaneity and chaos which you get with Leeds uh, is very refreshing to watch. It's nice to watch. It doesn't feel like it's all been planned out in advance in some over-plotted way. And yeah, I've got a lot of time for... For Bielsa, was a neutral a lot of time.
2: That's the other thing as well. Is it, 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 similar to Brian Clough as well. Brian Clough, he he wouldn't accept ill discipline, would he? Um, you know, you weren't allowed to talk back to the ref. You know, you you weren't allowed to complain to the ref whatsoever. And, and Bielsa's similar. You know, they just he wants them just to get on with the game. He doesn't want the ref to help them. You know, in this area where we've had no fans in the grounds, you can hear him all the time shouting, you know, no foul, no foul. And and if the player's down injured, he's screaming to them to get up, get up, you know, play the game, you know. so And and that's really refreshing too. I think that's actually undervalued. I, I think I would like it to be a bit more, uh, you know, spoke about by pundits and things because, it, it, you know, it's the way football should be and no, no one wins by, you know, claiming for every single throw-in. I mean, it just does my head in watching. And, you know, the ball goes out and you know that it's someone else's ball and they're all putting their arms up just for a throw-in in the middle of the, mat, of, the, of the pitch. It's like, just concentrate on the game. Um, so, yeah, that, that's something that really, I really like about him as well. And, and yeah, similar to Clough, I believe. He, he was he was very similar in that way. Yeah, he was. And that
1: sort of sense of there being a right way and a wrong way to play. And, you know, conning the refs is, is morally not okay. And, you know, that's maybe we're looking back on that now as people tend to do with a sort of nostalgic eye. But, but yeah, I I, I totally see what you're saying, rocker that sort of sense of, I just, you know, I find it very, I was a, an international athlete myself when I was younger, I was a former media runner. And I was sort of given the option, if you like, uh, or it was flowing around of whether to use performance enhancing drugs or not. Um, because once you get to a certain level, you know, that stuff is available, even if people don't, you know, come up to you behind the stands. And there's just a degree to which you go, I mean, for a start in athletics, the money isn't really there to make it worth your while, ruining your health, but just you go, why would I want to achieve something that I know deep down is not earned, has been achieved through through false means, through false pretenses. It would hollow out the things that you felt satisfied with in your own work. You know, as an athlete, you always felt most satisfied when you'd given everything, even if you didn't win. If you felt like you'd turned up, you'd handled the pressure, you trained really well, you gave of your best, then you could really live with yourself. That was a really satisfying day's work, um, and I think that's integral to sport. I really think that sense of of integrity is really integral to it. Otherwise, why do we bother? You know, if it's all either bought and paid for, or it's done by cheating or whatever, it, it sort of ruins the illusion. Um, and so that sort of, that essence of just wanting to do things the right way, which you're talking about with Bielsa, and I think Clough had, had something off, even if, as Chris says, off the pitch, he wasn't that committed to doing things the right way, by any means. Um, it's important. I think it's important to us as, as, uh, as appreciators of sport.
0: Can I just ask you something, Anders? In the Arsenal-Leeds hmm. game, um, what were your thoughts when it got back to 4-2?
1: I refer you back to the Arsenal 4-Newcastle 4, <laughs> 4 game of about 10 years ago. <laughs> Fortunately, we didn't have Phil Dowd in the, uh, uh, in the black shirt giving away free penalties. But you know Arsenal can collapse from any point. so uh, And you know Leeds can score from any point. So actually, to be honest, I wasn't super worried. We actually had the third best defensive record in the league this year, which isn't, is not a recent okay. Arsenal thing. Um, If it had been Emery, we would have definitely gone back to 4-4 quite quite easily. But honestly, I was just enjoying that. It's been a weird season as well because of the lack of fans. Like basically, I mean, it's partly because I don't feel nearly as connected to uh, post-Wenger Arsenal teams, partly because the the club is in flux, partly because the owner is a worthless parasitic (laughs) um, and is really draining the life out of that club. But really because of the fans, I didn't feel like this season kind of counted in a way or kind of existed. Like it just doesn't have the same resonance when a goal goes in and all you hear is is Mikel Arteta clapping. A lot. It doesn't really have the same kind of uh, the stakes are much lower. So I haven't really cared about this season as much um, because, yeah, it's not as gutting when... The opposition score and you hear their tw- fans yelling at you you know it doesn't have the same resonance basically so i did enjoy that game i loved that game to be honest i've really enjoyed i didn't enjoy the one at ellen road so much um because that annoying tw- Alioski duped pepe into being a moron and that was that was surprising actually that bielsa wouldn't have him hung drawn and courted because that was some some pretty embarrassing acting although dumb from pepe as well but i really enjoyed that um the four-two game. It was uh, it was sort of what I'd like Arsenal to be, and it was what I've kind of assumed Leeds are. So that was that mm. was a really fun encounter.
0: Um, something I'd uh, I'd like to ask you, Rocco. What can you recall? the First game you went to, first live game, and and had you seen a game on TV before that? So what was your first memory on say telly of Leeds of football, but then Leeds, and then what was the first live game you went to?
2: yeah so the my first memory of leeds was the uh well actually my, my first memory of leeds was I, I went to anfield so my brother's a big liverpool fan uh, so i went to anfield new year's day 1991 um, and leeds lost 3-0 to liverpool um, but at that time i was an everton fan <laughs> so i was about i think i was six years seven years old um, um, yeah, it was the 89 FA Cup final, Liverpool-Everton, and, and my brother said to me, uh, you be Everton, I'll be Liverpool, and that sort of stuck. Well, it stuck with him his whole life. But uh, By the time, you know, in 1992, I went to Ellen Road for the first time, and, and that was it. I was I was a Leeds fan thereafter. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, my, my very first memory of of football, um, I guess it was, it probably was that 89 final, but I don't even know if we watched the match. I think we just played football in the garden and, and didn't even watch it. Uh, so really for me, it's 1990 World Cup and uh, and yeah, obviously uh, Lin- uh, Lineker and, and Gascoigne and that semi-final defeat on penalties. I, I remember uh, Platt as well scoring against Belgium. Belgium, yeah. Um, so yeah very i mean i was born in 83 so i was very young and and the memories of uh, yeah quite uh, quite faded but, but yeah I, I just remember the emo- i mean i just loved the emotion of it all and i'm i'm half italian as well so yeah not only did i have the heartache of england losing i had uh, italy losing in the in the semi final to argentina as well although actually i, I loved maradona um so I, I don't think i was that bothered because uh, i was quite happy that maradona got to the final um but yeah, just the, the the passion of football is what what really you know drew me to it, um, and and it's something that, I mean, I I watch football now, and I, I struggle to to imagine children falling in love with it, you know, with with the VAR taking so much. Um, so much of the passion out of it, and and you know the way that you know there's just a free kick every time someone gets touched. You know there's there's no blood and thunder anymore, is there? So I mean, I don't want to start just like moaning like an old guy, but um yeah, like there's a lot of the game has been lost from from the game that I fell in love with, and I'm a bit worried that when Bielsa goes, um, yeah, I'm, I'm I don't know what's going to be left for me. I'll I'll, I'll really struggle. I
0: think go back to Sporting Everton.
2: <laughs> I wouldn't do that. <laughs>
0: And what about you, Anders? Can you remember what your first live game was? Or Was it Arsenal?
1: It was, yeah. Um, probably. Oh, I'm trying to think now. Well, I would have been taken a few times in the uh, in the mid '80s when I was a little kid. Um, but it was uh, it was probably the um, the early Graham teams, and actually those teams before. Yeah, the, his first couple of seasons, he was a lot more adventurous than the sort of. Arsenal offside trap stereotype, and then I think it was the Valencia loss in the uh, uh, at home when he he sort of regressed into a much more defensive style. And at that point, I'm I'm quite a football romantic. Like I really only care. I don't fundamentally care about. I mean, obviously, you want to win and you want to win trophies and all of that stuff. But I don't really. I don't think it'd be an interesting sort of thought experiment. As if if you know some tycoon with money, as opposed to the tycoon we have with money who doesn't know what Arsenal are, who own us at the moment. Some tycoon with money who decided to kind of invest in the club came along and introduced that sort of Chelsea win at all costs approach where the only thing that matters is the result. I don't know whether I'd go for that or not, if it got us, you know, champions leagues and things, but I tend to be very much about the style of the game and the romance of the game and trying to win the game. With good football in a kind of buccaneering, open kind of way. So even though Graham was actually more successful um, when he went to that defensive style, in a way, uh, I, I wasn't as interested. So it really, I kind of more fell in love with with, with Arsenal. Although i have been an Arsenal fan obviously from the from the beginning, with with Wenger because of the sort of the the sheer uniqueness of what Wenger brought. Uh, in terms of the approach, yeah, the the sort of the off the pitch stuff, but also particularly the kind of um, his, the way he confronted a very, very closed, xenophobic, inward looking, um, Brexity football industry, basically. And that resonates a lot with Clough. When I started to do the Clough research, the amount of clashes that he had with the stuffed shirts and the pompous gin-swilling businessmen of the FA and the club chairman, he was constantly in antagonism with these figures of authority who basically thought they deserved authority because of their position and because of their wealth. And that I'm like that as a person. Anyway, uh, if you know somebody in a position of authority has to earn it for me, I'm doubly skeptical of somebody who has a position of authority, because generally they had to do something unpleasant to get it. Um, but particularly the kinds of people he was running up against. And, you know, Wenger had exactly the same thing. You know, the, the degree to which the press would kind of smear Wenger was um, was was reminiscent of Jeremy Corbyn, really. It was kind of a, a prefiguring of the way that Corbyn was treated by the right-wing press. You know, this belligerent, Brexity, right-wing, xenophobic, how can a, a, a guy from Japan a Frenchman from Japan come over here and deign to tell us about our football. And of course, we've we've absorbed and adopted all of those principles that Wenger brought over. And and now everybody uses them, including, you know, Sean Dyche or whatever. But what I like about Bielsa is he's still, he's kind of like a a blast from the past in that sense. You know, he's almost like a kind of uh, Wenger as he was then, but in the modern day. And I think, Rocker, you're absolutely right. And I can't really think of, too many guys with that much personality and that much passion and that much kind of belief in doing things the right way in the in the newer generations of people. You know, people have been more integrated into the plastinated consumerist football of uh, of the Abramovich era. So, yeah, I man, I think it's great that he's in British football. It's um, he's a real addition to the to the Premier League. I, I really like him. There was
0: um, my daughter was a, um, did a. Erasmus plus placement in Bilbao so um she indulged me and we went to um Bilbao's ground but they've got it's a it's a pretty new ground but they've got an amazing museum and um the lad showing us around, you got a kind of guided tour around it. And we were there, there were, I think it was only four of us on the tour that day. So, um, and he, he said, Who do you sports? So I said, Well, Leeds. And he was just such a Bielsa file. He just absolutely adored Bielsa. And once he knew I was a Leeds fan, you know, we're, we're friends for life. But there's a whole section in that museum about Bielsa. And there's some of the quotes which are not about football, they're about humanity and they're about, you know, the, the relationship to. There was one amazing kind of quote about giving someone a hand out of a river or something, but it was very. um, poetic but also very you know humble and and reflective of him as a, a a man i think you know um and i think he spent he sent loads of money home hasn't he to newell's old boys and things like that and you know he paid the fine for the ridiculous spying thing um there's an incredibly moral streak running through him which given how old he is the fact that no one has ever been able to call him out on it it's quite phenomenal i think given the the industries he's involved in the fact that he's as far as I'm aware, he's never, you know, it's never that moral compass hasn't gone haywire at all. Or I've never heard stories of people saying, well, Biel said that, but he actually did this. Um, he does seem to absolutely live and breathe by his, um, you know, his, his, his viewpoint and standpoint and morals, doesn't he? It's um, very unusual, as you say, in this in this industry.
1: That's what I liked about both Wenger and Clough as well, is that sort of sense of where football fits in to wider human society. And it not just being about that's what's so damaging about the sort of winning is the only thing mentality is it really tends to like football fundamentally is a is a distraction. It's an enjoyment and it's a it's an aesthetic pursuit. You know, it's something that I don't think we just watch for our club to win, you know, because only one club can win the title of a year. Um, and why do we? Why are we interested in sport as fans? It's because there's a certain sense of, you know, we root for certain people, or there's a certain sense of the right people get rewarded or maybe the right people don't get rewarded. You know, there's a, there's sort of a sense of it fitting into the wider world. Um, that's what I find so unbelievably toxic about Abramovich and the city-states that own City and, and, and PSG is that sort of corporate washing in which... Basically, any amount of human rights abuses or incredibly dubious behaviours can be legitimised by your team winning a few trophies is sort of, I feel like it's destructive to football, but it's very destructive to society as a whole. And if you look at what Clough used to make his players do in terms of volunteering, the, way, the number of tickets Clough would give away, the stuff that Wenger talks about, it's not a coincidence that Wenger and Corbyn were very close. Um, in terms of that kind of sense of wider moral obligation to the outside world, it sort of feels like those figures are those figures who are trying to do make the world a better place in a weird way through football are very, very rare now, increasingly rare, because the game is so all absorbing and so capitalised and there's so much more media attention. You know, Clough wouldn't survive 10 minutes with Twitter. There would just be constant leaks and, and all kinds of madness. Um, And I think it's really difficult to have a sense of let's make the world a better place through football, as naive as that now sounds, in the modern day. And so, yeah, I I think it's going to be, I don't know who the next Wenger or or Bielsa will be.
2: That's why I was so happy that Bielsa won the the Fair Play Award um, a couple of years ago. Because I mean, he won it for uh, giving Aston Villa that goal. They let them walk the ball into our net, and and FIFA, you know, in in the in, in awarding him, um, they they said, our oh, you know, Bielsa gave away automatic promotion," um, which was only true mathematically. You know, we needed like a fifteen goal swing or something, so it didn't really it matter. Had but-
0: it had gone, yeah.
2: Yeah but nevertheless you know I mean there'll never be anyone you know more rewarding of of, of that uh, of that title because of everything else that he does and and what he stands off. and there was a great quote in there as well he said um uh, often the challenge isn't knowing what the right thing is but accepting the consequences of doing the right thing and yeah it's quite typical of Bielsa to to point out these you know often you know very basic truths but yeah he's he just got got a way about him to yeah, to bring bring things to the forefront of your mind, and he's yeah that that really I mean I was I was delighted I was so so shocked that that he had won that award you know be, being in the championship as well at the time you know you just wouldn't think he'd even have that exposure but um, yeah that that was a, a real shock.
0: It was quite funny because it you know that, that was two months after or three months after the whole Spygate thing, so he'd gone from public enemy number one yeah. to you know um, uh, goody two shoes. Yeah, um, I remember. Um, so I think my my fourth game was Leeds against Juventus in the first Cup final second leg, which Leeds Leeds won the tie on away goals. But and I don't think we've won a European Cup since. So um, I was amazingly blessed to to have gone to that game um, in the scratching shed, what is now the South Stand. So I, I seen I remember that coming home after being in that stand, you'd always have to shake the back of your shirt because all the rust would come out because every time the ball hit the roof, there'd like loads of rust had come down. It was all in your hair and um, real football, I guess, real football. Um, And I think one of the things I'm really pleased about with Leeds this last three or four years is that my lad is 25 and he's, you know, we beat Scum 1-0 in the cup and we got promoted against Bristol Rovers and that, in watching Leeds for 20 odd years they're the only highlights he's really seen he, he missed out on the the O'Leary team and it's just you know and he 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 lives in Edinburgh but he wears his Leeds shirt all the time and he's you know he's probably m- more yorkshire now than when he moved to Edinburgh but um i just and him and his brother i'm just so chuffed that they've got you know some pride back you know they they've They've people felt sorry for them for the last fifteen or so. Oh, bless! They're a Leeds fan, you know. Uh, oh, it could be worse. Well, it couldn't be worse most of the time. And um, he fondly remembers going to. No, he doesn't fondly remember. But it's the the kind of the the low ebb of supporting Leeds was. He went to Hereford away on a Tuesday night, and Lee Trundle missed a penalty, and we lost two 0 away at Hereford on a Tuesday night, and it was. I don't know, November or February, it was cold and miserable. And I kind of think it's for, you know, uh, how old are you, Rocco? Uh, I'm 37. Okay, so you've seen some good times, at least. Um, yeah,
2: but yeah, similar. I mean, I've I, you know, I I became a Leeds fan in in February of '92, so it was just before they they went on to win the league. But you can't appreciate it when you've not done the hard yards. You know, it, yeah. obviously I was happy, um, but it you know it didn't really mean anything to me like it would mean now. But yeah, funny you should say. You know, your son's twenty five. I've I've said um, in some of my writing that you know. Any Leeds fan under twenty five hasn't seen Leeds in the in the Premier League, um, yeah. or you know certainly you know, would would have very you know very uh, faded memories of it, and yeah that's the the heartbreaking thing of of this season you know to finally get there, and then you know these fans that have waited all their lives, and at least we've seen, you know I've seen O'Leary like you say you know great period, but yeah these fans that have just seen us in the lower leagues, and then we finally get there and also have such a fantastic season. And yeah, they're, they're still waiting. It's, it's awful. I, I was lo- one of the lucky ones to go to the game against West ham oh, Yeah. yeah it, ah. I mean, it was, it was fantastic, but still very bittersweet, um, you know, to, for, that everyone wasn't there, you know, you stood there and, and, you know, there's, there's nobody around you, you know, within, within, you know, two or three yards, but, you know, just being there and hearing, hearing the fans and, you know, screaming at the players, you know, within within 10 seconds, one of their players went down on the corner flag trying to get Liam Cooper sent off. And I was going absolutely crazy. You know, I couldn't believe that this guy was trying to ruin the match that we'd waited for for 17 years. And uh, I was going mad. But, you know, in the back of my head, I was still thinking,
0: oh, it's so good being able to do this actually in person and, and not just screaming at the telly was a couple of, um, I thought it was funny that Tottenham fans waited all this time and then booed their team off at the end of the <laughs> first game back. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, they put them up in the guards as well. Like they wouldn't move the advertising. Oh, is that oh, what it know. was? Oh, so they, they chose them, this is Daniel Levy in miniature. They, You know, some people, I think Burnley gave their tickets away, right? Levy charged them yeah. 60 quid, like full price, and then they wouldn't move the advertising banners they'd put over the lower ranks. So they were all up 900 miles in the air in the toilet bowl. Uh, and they got to watch them get slapped at home by Aston Villa. So, yeah, amusing. I wonder if fans are going to feel differently about their own power as well when they come back, because mm. it is obvious that there's no there's no point to the game without live fans. And that's sort of not the way the games were moving. You know, the games were moving away from live fans for at least a decade, maybe more, in terms of how frequently they reschedule the games. I mean, I don't really go away games. I have a season ticket for the home games. But, um, you know, a lot of the away fans I know, Get you know you book trains because obviously the ludicrous train system in this country you have to book them in advance and then they move it with two days notice or they you know it's the game finishes on a Monday night after the last train's gone back or whatever the sort of way in which the game has become orientated more towards TV consumption I wonder if fans are going to start to realise their own power because it's really obvious that fans basically stopped the Super League or the whatever this piece of is called you know that mm. that would have gone ahead into this just loathsome extended series of glorified exhibitions, which I don't think even certainly American fans, or I guess it's pitched out, or even Chinese fans want to see actual competition. They do not want to see people who happen to be dressed in Barcelona shirts passing it around in a game with no stakes on a Wednesday night just because it's Barcelona. And, you know, again, another thing I like about Leeds is they come up and they sort of, They've rattled a few cages, you know. They've sort of put it up a, bit, a little bit. They haven't just come up to survive and, um, you know, finish fourth from bottom and get forty points. They've come up to play some football, and and rattle some more established names and that sort of stuff. Even though at the moment Arsenal are not on the on the plus side of that, even though Arsenal are usually the ones having their cages rattled, that's what we want to see. We want to see the unexpected. We do not want to see the choreographed and the and the predetermined. Um, and I feel like fans are going to be fans have basically saved the game over the summer, and fans are needed more than ever. And I sort of wonder if it's about time that we, as match goers, kind of find a way to to enact that power. Because if we don't, then it will just become a glorified exhibition. Taking you know most games will take place in Miami or Singapore or wherever Stan Kroenke thinks he can make the most money and you know Leeds will not be in it and it would just be like why would I want to watch us finish bottom of the Super League every single <laughs> every year, year with no investment <laughs> of Stan Kroenke while the games are played in Ulan Barto. it's just like what is the point in that and the only thing that would stop that is people so yeah it's interesting in terms of whether I feel like well, all the things that are going to come out at the end of the pandemic of people coming back together again and realising things about human connection I wonder what form that will take in, in a football context.
0: There was a lovely quote from Uli herness who's the general manager at Bayern Munich, and um, they were talking about season ticket prices. And Bayern Munich season ticket prices are 104 euros. And he said, "Well, I, I could charge 304 euros, and I would sell out my stadium." And he said that would get me two million euros extra a season. What he said, "What am I going to do with that? Really, you know, what's two million euros going to buy mm. by Munich? Nothing, really." He said, "But 200 euros." for most of our fans, it's a huge amount of money. And I just thought that was a brilliant kind of analogy of of the good that can be thought about in terms of football. He, he, you know, I do worry, I'm not quite so sure as you, Anders, that the fans have got such a big part to play because this competition went on without anyone being in the ground. And there is, you know, the, the amount of revenue generated by the fans is, you know, to you and me, massive, but actually to the clubs compared with, you know, telly and, and shirts and sponsorship is, is it's a weird one because it's it's far, of far less value to the clubs than the TV deal. No, you know, um, that's
1: true. The uh, Fans basically don't have economic power.
0: No. I mean, no. another
1: delightful failure of, of the cronky regime is that we are the most, Arsenal are the most dependent on match day revenue of any club in the league because okay. they also have the lowest amount of owner input financially. So, um, and Spurs have also massively overstretched themselves there. So, for some clubs, more important than others. But basically, no, fans don't have economic power. But what they do have is participatory power. And as theatre makers, actually, it's a little bit like if you, if you put on a play in f- with no audience, as I have done a few times. <laughs> probably, <laughs> We've uh, done loads of times, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it doesn't really work that well. I mean, you know, actually, you can have a good vibe with three people in a theatre. But yeah, the the nature of the spectacle is fundamentally created... By the audience in theatre as it is in football and it's not just a question of people kicking the ball about and it meaning something it's the end i mean i still you know, i watched the uh, arsenal brighton game and that which was our last home game of the season and the energy there was so different like even though it was only i think ten thousand people or something you could the feeling in of like the purpose of the game was completely transformed like you could actually you know that the, they had an intent to them that was really missing in the periods when, yeah, all you could hear was the kit man going tie your shoelaces. It's sort of the, the degree to which the spectacle relies on people being in there to appreciate it has been reinforced by us not being in there. I think in a big way. I feel bad for the players. Like, can you imagine being in a bubble and being tested all this time and going out and doing this really high level? With no response, no energy, no feedback at all. It's like I am having been an athlete. You know, you get all your energy from from that sense of of being watched. And yeah, to to grind it out this many games in this condensed of time, with no feedback, no energy, no nothing pushing you on. Uh, it, I feel really, really. There must have been really, really hard for them. Really hard for them.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I've I've thought that as well about um, with with Leeds having Rafinha, you know, some of the skills that he's been doing, mm-hmm. and you just imagine the the response of Ellen Road, you know, when when the tails are up, and you know he he does one of his flicks, or you know skins three players, and yeah, like you say, it's just for for them as well, it's been very difficult, and also you know for the players that have. Putting all the hard work, and then you know, leads get promoted, and they can't celebrate it with the fans. You know, it's it's them as well as us, isn't it? You know, we mm. we feel, you know, hard done by not being able to celebrate it. That you know, waiting sixteen years, and and yeah, in the end, we just yeah, it's, it happens behind closed doors. You you couldn't write it, Um but for the players as well, you know, they've they've put all those hard yards in essentially for, for themselves, of course, but also for the fans and, and to not mm. be able to celebrate with us. Mm. It's really, really feel sorry for them as well.
0: Unless you're Tottenham players, of course, and then, you know, after being back for 20 minutes, you're getting heckled and... Yeah, getting yeah. Uh, at... out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I'd like to kind of come back to um, The Damned United, if I may. Um, have you seen it, Rocco? Uh, I've not seen the play. I, I've seen the film and I've, I've read the book. Good man. Well, we've added a performance on Saturday the 12th of June, the first to sold out of the playhouse, so we'll we'll get you in. Um, Fantastic. I mean, for us, it was um, when David gave us the rights to us, we'd, we'd just been excluded from what the Arts Council call their portfolio, which their core-funded clients. And pretty much single-handedly, that play kept us going for two years outside of that funded um kind of club really it's a bit like the the esl it's a bit like the european super league um being a a a core funded arts council client um but yeah you know the generosity of david the skill of anders writing and and you know the the backing of the playhouse as well they were very you know we had a cast of five i think and six or seven dancers for each performance i think so it's quite for us it was quite a big show but it was obviously and also a lifesaver but now I think we've done 150 shows. We did a run at Edinburgh with it, um, and yeah, it just felt uh, just felt appropriate to, to dust it down and get it back out again for um, yeah for, for another another outing. So I think was it 2016? The original it was around then, I think. 2015, so I think maybe was it. Was it 2050, Yeah. Um, it? So it's yeah, it's, it's coming up for its gold carriage clock soon. That show, but we're going to film it, um, and it'll be available to buy as a download uh so it'll be interesting to see if we get any take up from leeds fans in shanghai or or wherever so um uh and and as we were rehearsing it i thought well let's let's do some live performances so you must come and see it rocco
2: yeah that's fantastic thank you
0: yeah it it, it just kind of keeps giving really and it, it, and brian clough is that it doesn't take much for his name to come up on the telly or the radio mm. it's it's given it i mean he's, he's been passed away 10 years now um he just bounces back he's you know giving it uh, you know i feel a bit sorry for revy really because brian Clough, He was only at the club for seven weeks he's had a book he's had a film he's had a stage show don revy won everything going <laughs> apart from the european company and nothing you know he's obviously had <laughs> biographies but certainly he's, he's not been on stage um who, who would play don revy do you think i don't know anyway um <laughs> it, yeah the, the success of that play has been remarkable and it's kind of um it, it it's it's for, for us a small company it's really put us on the map so it it was a you know a lifesaver for us did you you you've seen both versions haven't you Anders the big version and the scaled down version yeah yeah
1: right yeah. well, i remember we did it in edinburgh in the and uh, the sort of more condensed version that's right i saw it in leeds and in derby it's interesting so i'm i like a bit of confrontation in life and also in theatre and so i started it out in this quite confrontational way you know he turns up and he says dirty, you know, spiteful, spiteful place, hateful, hateful place, dirty, dirty Leeds. So that's the first line of the play. And I was like, let's see how that goes down. And um, <laughs> they went; they loved it. And I've, I've got to say, I found it, I thought um, the feeling in, in Leeds and Derby was quite different. In Derby, it was just like the prodigal son is home. And it was actually, it was quite touching how many old people, particularly, and actually a lot of women, people who were you know, in the, in the prime during that era were just in tears. It was sort of like bringing back memories of pride and kind of a sense of positivity. And that's something you've got to love about Clough. You know, I think Clough obviously is a he's the great lost prince of English football in terms of he was never the England manager. He should have been and that would have been quite transformative. And instead, you've got these very turgid, slow, unsuccessful managers. But also, yeah, he took these deeply unfashionable, and he's quite a northern, and North, North, near Midlands and northern, kind of specific, geographically specific um, person. He's taking people, even though he's not from those areas of service, from Middlesbrough, but he's taking people who are unfashionable from a sort of unfashionable part of the country, these provincial clubs with not a lot of, of massively long history. And he's taking them to absolute glory and he's doing it without a lot of money. And there's something, again, the romance of football or the things we admire in football that people find, you know, that's really important to them. You know, it's sort of really important to to the people of Derby, that, that, that memory and that history. Whereas I thought there'd be a lot more antagonism um, among Leeds fans. And I set it up that way. There's no point pretending otherwise. You know, it was an antagonistic relationship. So there wasn't any point soft peddling that. And it was funny. Some of the heckling, you know, when he first comes out and people are like, you're not done, Revit, You'll never be f***ing Revit. like within the first 10 seconds of the show and people bantering and people trying to go on stage but i loved it and i particularly like you know i started out writing plays in prisons uh for prison audiences and with with prison casts and whatever so i've always had a fondness for doing theater for people that don't normally go to the theater i don't really see the point in writing plays for posh people in north london they are plenty well served so this sort of the nature of the people that came I found very pleasing. A lot of people who clearly hadn't been to the theatre much before and weren't really aware you shouldn't shout in a live medium and would get up precisely at 45 minutes. We did it 90 minutes long for a reason. And then at 45 minutes, like half the fellows would get up and go, I'm going for a pint. What do you want? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Is it better? And you're like, shut up, mate. There's a play going on. Do you know what I mean? But it was just brilliant. The sort of way in which people felt very included and kind of in a really quite constructive antagonism with the play, but also they they were much more empathetic towards Clough, maybe like you're saying they rocker, they're sort of maybe they've had time to reflect on it, or maybe it's just you know it's a club that it hasn't been that fashionable and hasn't been very successful for a very you know for up to quite recently, for a long time, and they were sort of touched with genius in a way, and you know, they had this encounter with genius and I did a lot more. People, you know, we went went down to Ellen Road, didn't we, Chris? And we met the supporters' club. And I really felt like a lot of them were going to go. I don't want to talk about this. He was really unpleasant and he hated our club. But actually, no, they were. Everyone was much more inclusive. You went. We went to Peter Lorimer's pub and we hung out with a load of Leeds fans from all over Norway, particularly for some reason. And they were all really (laughs) quite. um, They were much more intercliff and much more positive about Clough than I expected. And it was, um, it's just been a great atmosphere. It's just a great atmosphere in that play. It really, it's exactly the atmosphere you're looking for as a writer, where you want people to feel some sense of ownership and some sense of inclusion. And like their story is acknowledged, you know, like why do we talk about representation and all that? It's because we want people to feel acknowledged and seen and talked about in a public uh, environment. And I think, I feel like people really feel that in the, in the play without feeling like it's sentimental or like they're being patted on the back or whatever. You know, it's 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 a tough watch in certain respects because their club gets slated in some regards. But it's a great energy. I really, really like the energy we create with their play.
2: I think a lot of Leeds fans, it's um, they're a lot more comfortable with being hated than being praised. <laughs> and so, you know, even even you, Anders, when you sat there talking about how fantastic Bielsa is, I mean, I love to hear that because I love Bielsa and I like people to appreciate him. But still, it, it's still it's, yeah, it's, just, it's a strange feeling to to yeah to have Leeds liked or you know yeah,
1: yeah I get it. I you need that antagonism, particularly if you've been an outsider club or an outsider.
2: Yeah, you yeah. Know, you're right, you thrive on
1: the that antagonism.
2: That's that's maybe why um, you know it's well received. You know, the story of Clough coming to Leeds and you know he, you know he was he was anti-Leeds, calling us dirty Leeds. I don't think any Leeds fans mind that at all. <laughs>
0: there's um what always made me smile um especially at the playhouse where they've got quite rigid thoughts about going in and out of the auditorium and also in the courtyard theatre at the playhouse before they did it up those stairways are so creaky that you just knew when Mm. people were coming and going but it almost like the phone call when brian clough's told by his brother that his mum's died as soon as there's a bit of emotion blokes standing up left, right and centre off to the loo. That was about halfway through it as well I think. It was. And that always yeah, made me oh, a bit of emotional, better go for a, better go to the toilet, better go for a pint and um, <laughs> can't be doing this emotion. You know, it's not, I've come. I've not come here for that. And um, it just always made me smile and the, the ushers and usherettes would be kind of panicking as, as people would be leaving in their droves to go to the bar. But, you know, it was half time, so, you know. And they
1: come stomping back down those <laughs> rackety metal stairs making a load of noise and you're like, you haven't done this before, have you? But I like that, man. It's sort of yeah, like you know that's that's how people have to be. They have to they have to find their own way.
0: Well, I think we're probably going to wrap this up fairly soon. Um, any kind of final thoughts, Rocco, on on the season and where you think Leeds may go next season? Let's assume Bielsa signs like twenty minutes before the season starts. Um, yeah. What? What? Where do you reckon? What? 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 Are we in for next season? Do you think?
2: Um, honestly, I mean. I, I feel stupid saying it, but I, I think they can be pushing for top four, top six, certainly. I, I I would want to be in Europe next season, um, or qualify for Europe next season. I don't think there's any reason why they can't. I think there's obviously there's a lot of good teams, but there's a lot of struggling teams as well. You know, maybe West Ham won't be as good. Leicester, you know, they might maybe not be as good. Um and Leeds will just keep improving. I'm I'm certain of it. They've improved every single year, even last season from the first half of the season to the second half, they improved so much, and they just keep getting better. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I want to be back in Europe, hopefully not the Conference League. Into
1: <laughs> um, the Conference League, what even is that?
2: You'll end up playing in grounds where they actually have trains chugging
1: through them. Be <laughs> yeah. The best bit of Arsenal's season was missing the uh, the Conference League. Yeah,
2: you know, no, 10 I, I, and, and, and to be honest, actually, what I really want to see is us as take the uh, the FA Cup or even the League Cup seriously. Mm. And I, and I was annoyed, actually, with BL so that he, he you know, he, he took it so lightly this season, um, certainly the FA Cup, because we were already safe and he, he went to Crawley and, you know, he, he, he yeah, I, I, that really disappointed me because I felt like we could have won it. And, and actually, you know, when you look at the form in the second half of the season, we mm. really could have won it. Um, so... That's what it's about. You know, I I don't I don't believe in this, you know, the league means everything, you know, trophies mean something, you know, it'd be so fantastic if Bielsa delivers any any trophy. Um so yeah, fingers crossed we can do a, a nice cup run and uh top four. I mean if birthday. you look at
0: Leicester, they they I mean unbelievable, you know, last four or five seasons, you know. So they've done it right, mm. haven't they? They've they've all right, missed missed out in the Champions League two years by the skin of their teeth, but they've won a cup. You know, they won the FA Cup, and you kind of think, as a supporter, to come fifth and not be supposedly one of the big six is remarkable. But to win the league and then win the cup, all in the space of what feels like a blink for an eye, with um, and having sold Mares and and Chilwell and who else have they sold? Um, the lad to Chelsea, Kante. yeah. Um, yeah,
1: I mean they, they they're very smart in the way that they you know. They circulate people. I mean, for you know, for the price of Harry Maguire,
0: oh I forgot that him yeah. yeah.
1: slab headed fridge, uh, they've managed to get Fafana and Soyunchu and James Justin. I mean, they've got themselves three out of a back four, all of whom are better players than the guy they sold to the world's stupidest football mm. club for 80 million quid. I mean, it's you know, that's intelligent. And it's sort of like there are other clubs doing something. So I mean Brentford are doing something that is overtly analytics based. And they seem to do that very well as well. Whereas I find that a bit bloodless. I don't really enjoy the analytics takeover of football. I mean, it's, you know, there's an oddity in which people treat data as some kind of, like the postmodern equivalent of truth is data, basically, where people don't have the courage to say, this is what I believe. They go, here are the facts, but facts are always applied in certain ways. You know, facts don't exist. As an abstract thing, data is you know, has its own value judgments and whatever. So I find the the analytics side a bit bloodless, but you know it obviously is smart. Certainly smarter than Arsenal's plan of buying whoever Chelsea wants to give them uh, five years after they've passed their sell by date. But Leicester have a brilliant balance between yeah picking up guys intuitively and perhaps using data and and flipping them on and, and getting new and, and talented people. You know, and Didi is a really good looking player. Um, uh what's your man there the nigerian striker that, that seems to be able to come from
0: know yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: he's yeah. who's doing he's done really well this season um and then they've got some you know young guys like harvey barnes
0: i think from our point of view the fact that i i think was it 10 of the 11 players that finished the game against west brom started the first game at stoke you know three seasons previously and each one of those players has got better um and so there's someone- another
1: interesting way of doing it is improving people internally Yeah, because Leeds don't yeah. seem to buy a lot or sell a lot they seem to be sticking with the same squad
0: yeah I mean two have gone this season but um the four players they've bought injuries kept two and that's why I got fed up with Liverpool moaning about Van Dijk being injured we, we had our centre-halves injured all you know well 70% of the season so I don't have any truck with that they just go out and buy whoever they want these days um so I don't I don't buy into this injuries business um so i thought that was really impressive and also the fact that uh, apart from maybe arsenal we pretty much did better in the second games against teams than we did in the first one um so like Leicester, for instance we lost at home we won away uh, palace we won at home lost away uh, lost away and then won at home spurs lost away won at home we, we it the, it wasn't as if we were getting found out, so I think there's there's still a lot of miles in this methodology. I think, which is which is really, I think if it had been the other way around and we'd started off and won, mm. you know, I don't know, ten out of the first twelve games, and then started losing to the teams we'd beat, we'd think, I'd think, oh yeah, but that wasn't the case. So I think it was only Arsenal who did better second time around against us than than most teams. Or well, West Brom only conceded three as opposed to five, so that's maybe a moral <laughs> um, a moral victory. I don't know. Good old Sam. Um, yeah. And yeah if I I just I I need to ask you this Anders because um we might um have to get the bleeper out but just the whole European I I was quite intrigued there was two things that intrigued me kind of was that we are owned by a media man Adr- Radzani mm-hmm. has got a media company um and I wondered if this had happened in 2 years time and he'd been offered a slice of this what what would the uptake be I sincerely hope not but you know who knows and mm-hmm. the other thing I thought was amusing was um sky's absolute buy-in to the furore and i was thinking they are because p- they are not invited yeah, yeah. to yeah they're table. losing their access and and i just thought that was hilarious and they allowed you know they tried to shut up gary neville but um actually half-heartedly um and i thought that was that made me smile the fact that sky was so behind these these fan protests and they should then they were fan
1: I, protests causing the man united liverpool game to get postponed they went mental. So yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it, which which fan protests are you into?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I don't think Leeds are ever going to get offered a, a spot in the uh, in the European Super League, even if they do well. I mean, the obvious outlier, and I'm not just saying this because they're c- is Tottenham. I mean, who have not won anything in the last thirty years, and are a baffling inclusion. Um, but Levy has basically managed to finesse his way into being perceived as a as a big club without ever having really achieved anything. Um, but in objective terms, Arsenal do not deserve to be there either in terms of uh, recent achievements and status within their own league, but it's about um, marketing and it's really about how much they think. You know, I don't think if, if Kane wasn't there, I don't think they'd have offered uh, Spurs a spot um and arsenal is still very very popular particularly in um in francophone communities and uh one reason you know i'm sort of from south london and it's a it's a largely black area and that's sort of that's that's a pure arsenal area partly because there isn't a um a big club in south london sorry palace but also because um yeah arsenal was sort of the black club i suppose in mm. uh in london certainly had black players a long time before chelsea unsurprisingly but that sort of sense of it's, you know, it's a fairly inclusive club. And Wenger in particular was a very internationalist kind of guy. Um, so there's there's a big Arsenal backing in, in Africa across the world and all that kind of stuff. And that's cynically what Cronky is relying on. I mean, the Super League is absolutely perfect for Stan Kroenke, who has, I don't think he knows what a football is. Um, and it's actually the, the worst possible kind of owner is somebody who, Simply doesn't care as opposed to, I mean, I think in, a, in you know, he basically bought Arsenal because there was a huge amount of infrastructure already in place. There was a brand new stadium. And partly because of Wenger's long standing antipathy towards the transfer market, there was a huge budgetary surplus. And he used to use, they had about 200 million in the bank back in the day when 200 million was a lot of money rather than what you'd pay for Maguire's left toenail. And he, he used that as direct um, collateral for the loans on his stadium in LA. So Kroenke's only interest in Arsenal is as uh, a bunch of assets and an appreciating asset due to footballing deals, but primarily as collateral for a balance sheet to expand his interests in the NFL and other sports. And that's, you can't imagine a worse owner in that sense because somebody who... Has no interest in the well-being of the club whatsoever. No interest in the sport. No interest in um, in pleasing the fans or in encouraging kind of you know buy-up of tickets or whatever. Literally, only sees the club as something on a balance sheet to expand his already enormous empire.
0: And that's sort of. So I, I was I was going to ask you this, Anders. I, I mean, obviously, he's not your your on your Christmas card list, but you have bought some quite a few players for quite a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um So. Where does that? So that I mean that can't be sanctioned without him saying yes, can it? So it's
1: not uh, a question of um, absolute starvation of the uh, of the managers. It's a question of when you don't care, you don't pay attention, and so what you do is you appoint people who you kind of think are capable, and you leave it all to them. And because they don't care, they don't understand football, and I'm not even sure they could find England on a map, let alone the Arsenal. They repeatedly appoint total shysters. Like, they repeatedly appoint smooth-talking dickheads who I'm not allowed to say legally what they've got up to. But there is a reason why Raul uh, is no longer in charge of the club. Um, in in completely unrelated, and entirely coincidental series of events, we paid 72 million quid for Nicolas Pepe via very, very many forms of intermediary and all kinds of stuff. There are, let us say, um, interesting financial transactions that result when you don't care and you don't pay attention to the people in charge of the club. What's odd about the Cronkies isn't that they are... Um, sociopathic capitalists, you expect that from billionaires, it's their sh*t. sociopathic capitalists. The incompetence of these people, as well as the ignorance, as well as the kind of malice towards a community asset, a complete lack of interest in like little things like they were, Arsenal among all the top clubs were quite unique in that they had individual shareholders. So there were hundreds of people who owned one share of the Arsenal. And quite often, they passed it down from their grandfathers. And, you know, it'd been in the family for generations. And they forcibly acquired all of those little sh**. They only did that so they could do everything in the dark. Like, you know, those four, those shareholders had no influence, but they were allowed to go to the AGM and ask Stan Kroenke annoying questions. And that sort of suctioning out of a community asset and turning it into a balance sheet in LA and putting people in charge. Ivan Gazidis, who was a smooth talking shyster, who's now in bed with um, the owners of Inter Milan, who are out and out. A guy called Paul Singer, who's an out and out venture capitalist. You should see what Paul Singer did to Argentina in buying up uh, distressed debt and squeezing the Argentine state at the cost of all kinds of stuff for the Argentine people. These people are the most evil people in the world. I mean, you're going to have to get a libel lawyer to look into whether we can say these things. But these people are responsible for the worst kinds of predatory, exploitative, destructive capitalism. And this comes back to my point about like, what are you trying to do with football? It's not just about winning. It's about does this fundamentally a thing that people are proud of. We saw that with our play, you know, when we took it to Derby, took it to Leeds. People are proud of their team. They're proud of it. It makes them feel a certain way. And to turn it into this speculative asset is just, it's impossible to live with, irrespective of the fact that it has a terrible effect on the, the performance of the club on, on the field, because the club is just in, nobody is paying attention. Nobody is saying, should you be paying, should this guy we've appointed be paying twice the price for this striker from Lille? Should you be paying 35 million quid for Skodran Mustafi? Should you be paying 35 million quid for Granite Shacker? you know, should you be letting Meza Ozil squeeze you like this? Should you be letting Alexis Sanchez basically walk out of the door, Aaron Ramsey walk out of the door? You you shouldn't be doing these things. And anyone who was paying attention to the assets of their club and to keeping their club going and to making the most of, of what they have at their disposal wouldn't be letting those kind of deals happen. But to me, it's what happens when you transfer football from what is fundamentally a working class person's form of, Entertainment and social expression and interaction, it's a community asset. It's a thing that is embedded in the people who go and it means something to people. And you turn it, you put it in the hands of the worst people in the world. You put it in the hands of gerontocrats and speculators and parasites and vulture capitalists and people who made their money ripping off millions of people in Siberia. It's sort of. I find that impossible to live with. It, it really sucks the joy out of watching all the games to know that these are what these clubs stand for now and what they mean and that's why turning it turning this the, the creation of the Super League is just the final unmooring of the club from any kind of rooted basis within a community to being this free-floating global content provider. Slash platform that can be moved around to Miami or Brasilia or whatever, wherever it can get the most clicks and eyeballs. And that, I mean, if they joined the Super League, I just would have stopped watching. That's the long and the short of it, man. I just wouldn't give a. F-. But it, it's still the way in which football is going in that direction is um, it absolutely sucks the life out of it. And then, as Rocco's saying, the whole VAR stuff and the role of technology just compounds that. But yeah, what has happened to football clubs is is heartbreaking and hard to hard to live
0: with. I do think that the relationship Radzinski has with Bielsa and Angus Kinner looks, on the surface, very healthy, and it it seems like a, a triptych of um, all people all going in the right direction, all got huge respect for each other. Um, but not to the extent that they're just, you know, doormat. So, um, I think we are in good hands. I, I would like to think that Radrazzani would, would not have played ball if offered. Um, and I think you're right, Anders. I think it'll be many, many years before Leeds are ever, if ever, um, in that kind of ballpark. But I guess we better wrap this up now. Um, I would just like to say thanks, Anders, and thanks Rocco for joining, uh, joining this podcast. It's been great fun, um, and fascinating as ever. um, This is uh, to celebrate the Dams United coming back out. It is on at Leeds Playhouse, uh, the 10th, 11th and 12th of June. York Theatre Royal on the 16th. And then um, at Waterside in Sale, quite close to Man United, I think. Um, Enjoy that one. And then uh, Durham and Mansfield. And then uh, Summer Break. So thank you all for joining me.
1: It's my pleasure, man. It's been fun. Thank you. It's been great.
0: Yeah. Cheers. Thanks.